the 1960s, the moonshot just unleashed this extraordinary amount of investment in, in technology. And there wasn't a tight agenda on commercial success. It was just that, you know, unleashed the beast and the beast was running. So we now get down into expectations and, and expectations. I'm going to phrase this probably in the year 1992 is a good place to draw the line. Over in Europe, there was this confident expectation that they were on the right side of history, that this alliance of the, by then, largest group of companies on the planet, the telephone companies, together with strong government public sector support, was going to create the open communications protocol for the next uh, 20 years, maybe, maybe longer. But, you know, it was the stake in the ground. It was we are the success path. This is where the future of communications is lying. We've done all the theory. We've engaged with the researchers. This is bright, sparkly stuff. It's fantastic. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I had a discussion revisiting some of the last 40 years of networking history. In a recent blog, Jeff reflected on the failed expectations of protocol design. We discussed some of our memories of the rise of the internet and the failure in launch of the OSI approach to global networking. These failed expectations around the decline of IPv4 and adoption of IPv6 have some consequences for the future internet. Jeff, welcome back. George, it's an absolute pleasure. Hello. So, what should we talk about this time? You know, I went to this workshop in the middle of May. And when I say went, <laughs> I was one of the few that went virtually. Everyone else had a pleasant week or a few days in the countryside of Germany, which is a very nice place, evidently, at some castle. But I was doing cold nights doing all this virtually. But isn't it amazing that we are now able to go to events virtually and it actually works? And not pay thousands of dollars a second. Yes, all of that is amazing. And oddly enough, that was kind of one of the themes. This workshop was actually about what have we learned after near 40 years of the internet. I go near because the original papers and the original work on packet switch networking is actually getting close to 60 years ago now. Um, yeah, this is seminal work by people like Louis Pouzin, who actually theorized about packets carrying addresses moving rather than continuous data streams between end-to-end -end points and worked on at places like NPL. But, you know, packet networks might have a deep history, but internet, ARPANET, I think your 40 years kind of has a good feel to it. I mean, you could argue the toss about 78 or 79 versus 81 or 82, but you're down in the weeds, right? It's a long time ago. The original design paper was 74, the Binsurf and Bob Kahn. The first time it kind of looked modern was the flag day on the 1st of January, 83 which I've only read about. I was not doing IP at the time. That was the day 
everyone had to boot into TCP. They were originally using NCP. So I kind of did and I didn't because I was actually working on one of the other protocol suites across that time frame that I have no doubt we'll come to talking about later on. My intersection, like you, in strict sense is really later. It was more 84, 85 that I started using this. So I actually, to all intents and purposes, emerged into a TCP world. But I do remember the flag day. Right. So I wanted to talk about, because that's what gave us 40 years, but I went there wanting to talk about an area that I think we've had a stellar performance, which is actually failed expectations. And oddly enough, right from the word go, the internet has actually been a classic example of things that didn't work as we expected them to. Now, I'm not saying they failed. Sometimes we expected one outcome and got entirely another. And we might get on to the debacle of, oh, my God, V6 is taking forever, which is a classic failure of expectation because we never expected to be in a 20-year-long transition. But I would actually argue that the failure of expectation actually started almost 40 years ago, and it started in the environment of the 80s. This is dredging back a long way into my tape memory. I've now got to go into the archives, find very old spools, mount them in a reel-to-reel drive, search through the tapes. (laughs) So... Pray, start at the beginning, Jeff, while I batch up my memory job to remember those heady times. You see, the 1970s was actually almost the halcyon days of the computer mainframe. There were big chassis full of cards, and on those cards, you occasionally had the integrated circuit, but there was a huge number of transistors. And everyone was trying to build bigger, larger, faster mainframes. And that hardware was the dominant cost. The software that came with it was almost incidental. And oddly enough too, all the so-called peripherals, the card readers, the tape readers, the printers, all of that stuff was almost, again, peripheral. So when you bought an IBM, everything was IBM. When you bought something from Burroughs, remember them? Everything was Burroughs. Univac, digital equipment. Now, what was going on in the computing industry was actually going counter to mainframes. Because while mainframes were getting bigger and larger and consuming more power, computers, the actual silicon industry, Moore's law was getting right in there. Integrated circuits were arriving And computers, you could make a decent computer for a smaller and smaller footprint. And in the 1980s, we started to see the introduction of the mini computer. We started to even see the introduction of the hobbyist computer, MSI 8080s and and similar. And that was an extraordinary break because all of a sudden, colouring a corporate, colouring a university with the colours of Univac or the colours of IBM and everyone had the same stuff. And if you ever wanted to switch mainframes, you switched out everything. In this new environment that had lots of little computers as well as a big mainframe or two, all of a sudden you needed to glue them together and not swap them out all the time. 
I think there's some points in that thesis I might differ a little bit with. But in broad brush sense, Jeff, I think you've caught the flavour of it. My memory is very slightly different. In the first place, the history of small computer development reaches back quite a bit before then, but they were essentially incredibly small, finite machines. The PDP-8, for instance, was launched in 1968. I was a kid at the time. I actually had two cardboard PDP-8s left over from a deck trade show that I got to. And they were, to all intents and purposes, really jazzed up calculators. They were full stored program computers, but they were isolated units. And there were many computers emerging. The PDP-11, for instance, emerged in the mid-70s, and there were ways to network them. There were third-party vendors who were selling peripheral attachments, particularly to IBM. But the broad point was, if you bought a peripheral for a mainframe, it was for that mainframe. You were essentially buying into a product family. And as you say, the commitment of a campus to which product family you had was a major, major consideration. So that early 80s feel where slightly more commoditized minis and the beginnings of desktop and home computers emerge, it truly was a wonderful period because, as you say, it was the birth of a sense, wait a minute, I might not be single vendor on this. I might be multi-vendor right the way across the board. It was an interesting time. Right. Rather than spending 90% of your money with one vendor and a smattering on others, all of a sudden it was kind of evening up that not everyone got their computing solutions from the computer centre, corporate or campus. And in essence, what was going on was that all of these disparate bits and pieces of the computing environment needed to be glued together. Yes. So my PDP-11 needed to talk to the UNIVAC or the IBM or the something. And the problem was that the entire world was full of vendor protocols. So you ran SM. Highly, highly vendor-specific protocols. Right, yes. and they had teeth in their intellectual property. So you could run DECnet, you could run SNA. If you had Wang, you could run the amusingly named WangNet protocols. But yes. they were all different. And the whole issue was, how did you get out of that vendor lock-in? And the industry at large, at large, was kind of going... This has got to stop. We can't be held hostage to the last vestiges of the mainframe environment simply by dint of these computing communications protocols. Now, at the same time, early 80s, as this thought was wandering around, there was this unlikely, beautiful invention, Ethernet, a triumvirate of digital the photocopy company, a Xerox, never made a buck from computing, but was behind some of the most astonishing developments in computing, including the graphical uh, user interface. Xerox, Intel, Xerox, and digital. So Intel was there too. And they came up with, it became vendor neutral. They headed it off to the standards bodies really quickly of this wonderful piece of fast network. Yeah. Around that time, people had already emerged into telecommunication standardization, but kind of starting from the ground up. So the physical characteristics of electronic wires, lines to connect together to form data circuits was being standardized. People had agreed on voltage levels and people had agreed on power strengths to be sent down wires. They'd agreed on things like pinouts for serial lines, but there were 
quite interesting divergent beliefs around what you did with 25 pins in a D-shaped 25-pin connector. Even at that time, standards were getting a little complex. There were the beginnings of some things there. Ethernet was incredibly different. Ethernet. It was so Ethernet different. Ethernet was fast. It was simple. It just worked. And I think it actually recalibrated the entire industry because the telephone companies at the time had just finished the big bang of digitizing their entire internal communications. The switches inside telephone networks were no longer Stroger switches with continuous conductor connections. We were actually digitizing the voice and switching those digital frames. And so there was a broad, and I mean really broad interest in digital communications and the protocols that drove them. Now, the telephone companies were just as aware of it as the computer companies. And there was certainly this frustration across the industry, but mostly with the folk who bought computers, of going, every time I buy a computer from IBM, they apply the screws, or from Univac, or from Burroughs, or from anyone else. I want vendor neutral. I want open, just like Ethernet. I want something that goes up from the coaxial cable all the way up to say, I want to buy this device and I want to communicate using that protocol, not tied to the device, an open protocol. And because at the time, governments were a big part of computer purchase, it was kind of the heyday, there was a certain amount of push from the public sector to go, hey, computing guys, come on, get serious. We need open protocols. We need stuff that's not vendor-based. And from this emerged an alliance, if you will, between universities, government funders, and the government as the purchaser, and this massive project that took root predominantly in Europe called the Open Systems Interconnection Framework, OSI. So that's kind of my significant moment, because prior to this, I'd been working in academic networking on a framework of protocols that were pretty much targeting X25. So there'd been this emergence of packet networking with international focus, and it had kind of diverged into different communities exploring packet networks. And British Telecom and the post office of the day had come up with a design they called ESS, Estrial, which ultimately became their version of the X25 protocol. And the academic network of the UK, Science and Engineering Research Council, CERCnet, that ultimately became JANET, latched on this as the framework for connecting British universities. I was one of the people doing software maintenance and development on a suite of applications and protocol stack to run on this network. And I moved from there to work at UCL, University College London, that was at a very interesting juncture in its research because it was part of what was called SatNet, one arm of one bit of the early ARPANET over a satellite link, and it was the recipient of a huge grant to implement this wonderful protocol stack you've just mentioned called OSI. You see, and that's kind of where this intersection of expectations started to clash. 
Because you see, the predominant model in Europe was this government sponsorship with involvement and engagement and support from the telecommunications sector, both of whom wanted open protocols, not vendor lock protocols. Now, let me just digress for one second and point out that the biggest computer companies were American, not European. So when they really meant open, they meant not American. And this entire thing about networks was yet another transatlantic tussle. That what the Europeans were really saying in a very careful voice is, we don't want no American communications technology. We think if we buy local, we'll get around the current sort of hegemony of American-based mainframe computer providers and start to build European industry. So strong government support. Yes, and strong engagement from companies that are well-known in the European context, like ICL, a British computer company, oh, C.I. Honeywell <laughs> Bull, a French computer I've company. I've names already. <laughs> Olivetti, an Italian computer company. Nixdorf, these were the kinds of entities who were looking at global market share saying, it's really hard for us to compete with digital equipment, IBM, Unisys, Honeywell. We need some kind of strategic direction. And the European economy said, yes, we're worried about this. So there'd actually been trade disputes emerging where European phone companies had tendered for supply behind the communist bloc, and they had agreed not to sell the equipment under technology transfer rules, at which point the Americans had allowed an IBM affiliate called Rome to sell telephony equipment under the same restrictions. (laughs) And it was the politicization of trade relationships. So there was a certain reactive quality to this. But, you know, even if the motives were somewhat venal, the goals were very interesting. So Being open is a good goal. So over in America, you could actually look at the federal government circle and you can almost put this huge divide between two parts. There's everything else that isn't defence, and there's defence. And I suspect even then, and probably today too, the defence side is bigger in terms of money, people, etc. And even though the government, the non-defence parts of the US federal structure are in the same bind as everyone else around the world, we're sick of vendor lock-in. Yes, they may be American companies, but this is costing us a fortune. It's incredibly inefficient. And there was defence. And defence was big enough to say, "Uh, we're going to roll our own. What do you mean? Look, we're big enough. We're going to take this rather interesting model of packet-based networking, and there's been a few folk wandering around the corridors, and they look interesting. We're going to throw them a bucket of money and see what happens. And they did. And so out of this early work, and it wasn't terribly official, Like most of these defence advanced projects, they were kind of, oh, God, have some money, do good things. If it's great, we'll all love you. If not, we'll just quietly move on to the next. It's okay. That was quite a contradistinction to Europe, where the amount of cash available for research investment was in many ways a lot more constrained. And people were being trained to 
extract value for money. So doing a speculative investment in a networking activity that might or might not work was really unlikely to fly against competing grant applications. Whereas the Americans, I don't want to overstate this because it's not that they literally had money falling out of their pockets, but they'd already achieved unbelievable advances in computing and communications and radio telephony and research giving funds out on the basis, we know this might not work. They'd kind of done that pretty much throughout the Second World War and beyond. The 1960s, the moonshot just unleashed this extraordinary amount of investment in in technology. And there wasn't a tight agenda on commercial success. It was just they had unleashed the beast and the beast was running. So we now get down into expectations. And, And expectations, I'm going to phrase this, Probably in the year 1992 is a good place to draw the line. Over in Europe, there was this confident expectation that they were on the right side of history, that this alliance of the, by then, largest group of companies on the planet, the telephone companies, together with strong government public sector support, was going to create the open communications protocol for the next... uh, 20 years maybe, maybe longer, but it was the stake in the ground. It was, we are the success path. This is where the future of communications is lying. We've done all the theory, we've engaged with the researchers. This is bright, sparkly stuff. It's fantastic. So if we just backfill a little bit here, the academics doing research in digital communications had come up with a reference model that was how they described the different aspects of end-to-end communications between digital devices. It was called the ISO reference model, the seven-layer model. And ISO, the standards body, had put out this terminology, physical layer, net link layer, network layer, transport layer, session layer, presentation layer, application layer. And we all had jokes about money layer, politics layer. But the bottom line was it was just a reference framework to discuss how different things might work. OSI was taking that reference model from the ISO and, if you like, flipping the letters and the intent around. This wasn't a description model. This was literally defining protocols that mapped one-to-one to to that reference model. The OSI model was there will literally be a layer called the applications layer, and we will define it. There will literally be a layer called the presentation layer, and we will define it. Every single slice of this seven-layer cake of protocols had, and we will define it, written all over it. You know, I understand that, and at the upper layers, it's been a little bit ambitious, but that abstraction at the lower layers was extraordinarily powerful. It was fantastic. There were some protocols at the time which were built chaotically. There was a fantastic local area terminal protocol built by digital that only worked over Ethernet. But by God, it worked. But only over Ethernet. It wasn't independent of the media. And it was these kinds of, well, if you can make it fly over media one, but it won't work over any other media, you've kind of failed. And this abstraction of OSI of of saying each layer, the media, the connectivity, end-to-end and so on, define them separately so that if you want to change technologies midstream, 
go from, ooh, Ethernet to, ooh, FDDI, you know, being in vogue at the time, you didn't need to rebuild the entire protocol stack. You didn't need to rebuild everything. And that, again, for the industry, was a gigantic turning point because we were starting to up the pace of technical evolution. And if the cost was each time you move technologies, you had to rewrite the entire communications protocol stack, uh, you know, yeah. not going to happen. A lot of money. Lot no. of, in, impossible. So OSI allowed you to think about parts of functionality, that reference model, separately and actually evolve parts of it without having to rebuild everything else. So that was a fundamental good thing. And there were many good things in that kind of OSI model. But there's also the expectations of real concrete delivery of a fully functioning, completely integrated, globally applicable application suite built on top of this wedding cake. The two figures on the top with the wonderful icing was absolutely believed to be the goal. Totally. Now, let's whiz over to the other side of the Atlantic now for just a second or two and talk about the expectations of that little-known advanced research project run inside variously ARPA and DARPA. They kept on adding and dropping the D from time to time, which was getting by under the name of the internet. It was never meant to be a success in enduring terms. The expectation was actually that this was merely an experiment It was meant to stay inside the lab. Maybe the Defence Department could use it because there was nothing else around. That was fine. But that was it. It wasn't a commercial product for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is the Defence Department did not wish to compete with IBM, Digital, Univac, Burroughs, and all the rest of those giants who were making lots of money and paying lots of tax dollars. The job of this little project wasn't to bring those other fine American companies to their knees. It was actually meant to stay under the hood and just quietly do its job. And when the time was right, die. Die. Mm, Bit of a problem. Bit of a problem there because success failure is the best (laughs) kind of failure, isn't it, Jeff? So I bring up June 1992. You see, the internet escaped out of the lab in Al Gore's High Performance Computing Initiative of 1987, where at the time, the academic and research community in the US with government funding could afford seven, I think it was, I think it was seven, really expensive supercomputer centres. All of them, of course, American supercomputers, but let's not go there. But there are many more researchers than seven. There are many more computer centres than seven and many more researchers and so on. So how did you bring hundreds of thousands of researchers to these seven supercomputer centres, you needed a network. And so the National Science Foundation, which had been given the job of implementing Al Gore's program, was given $40 million to build a national academic and research network, not just for general academic use, but with a purpose to supplement the much larger sums of money, hundreds of millions, that had bought these supercomputers. Now, when they looked around for protocols, working protocols, protocols that were going to carry traffic, not just empty, vapid bits of paperwork and specs on paper, 
real protocols that wasn't vendor locked in, there were very, very few. And in fact, the only one they could see at the time was this little research project in the Department of Defence, the ARPANET, which was actually managing extremely well to do a job that was getting bigger every year. So at that time, there were probably somewhere of the order 10,000 people who were using that network. It was a world where if you applied to the right agency, they would create a record in a telephone directory called Whois. I got my Whois record in 1985. <laughs> and somebody actually printed every year a paper copy of that directory. You could pay to be given a directory of everyone who was currently on ARPANET, which was really quite strange. So you say little, but little is contextual here. Little really meant about 10,000 people. And that is big enough to say this absolutely works. Right. So, you know, I seem to remember John Quartermain at that point writing those directories. But anyway, at some point there were these two protocols and the NSF net, the National Science Foundation network, was charged with this, actually did a two-protocol network. They were required to also implement the bits of OSI that they thought were relevant. So they actually did some kind of OSI-based service as well as taking on the internet protocols coming out basically of the ARPA work. So again, the expectations here when we get to 92 was that the internet was merely a stopgap measure until OSI got its act into gear and OSI was the solution. Now, there was some work during NSFNet that rocked, I think, the computing world, and certainly in America, to its foundations. Because as soon as everyone else saw the NSFNet, and by everyone else, I meant Asia, the rest of Europe, even a lot of Europe itself, from the academic and research community, the answer was, knock, 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 we want in too. And so all of a sudden, in 1989, Australia connected, Japan connected, New Zealand connected, Singapore connected, and basically they connected using IP. And over in Europe, of course, Norway, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, you know, the list was just going on and on and on. And a number of commercial providers poked their little head above the parapet and said, you know that Unix operating system? You know that internet protocol? You know they kind of go together. And Unix is actually interesting. And computing was getting cheaper. And so we started to get the first of the commercial internet service providers by 1990. Now, it should be said that across this entire period of, we didn't mean this to happen, but everybody wants it, exactly the same players were all putting their hands up to participate in their local version of OSI development, their local component of government network procurement, their regional version of coordination towards a hypothetical future OSI blended network that would interconnect everything. They were all doing that, but they were simultaneously saying, oh, wow, this internet stuff looks pretty straightforward. I think we might get a piece of that. This seems like a good way to get things happening. Well, if you want a government funding, you naturally sang from the OSI hymn book, blah, 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 OSI, blah, blah. But if you wanted to move packets, 
you got a free, underline this, free, F-R-E-E, as in pay nothing, full source code implementation of TCP IP. If you're a university, you got a free, as again, pay nothing, Unix operating system, courtesy of AT&T, and courtesy of the breakup under Judge Green, where AT&T couldn't sell it, so they were forced to give it away. And if you really wanted to move packets, you used IP. Now, maybe you didn't make a big song and dance, but pragmatically, that's what you did, because that's the way you move packets. You might well be using DECnet on a local campus in a commercial enterprise in a bank, or you might be using SNA, or you might be using a number of protocols. But when it came to free and open communication using email and file exchange, because that's pretty much what people were doing, you used the internet. And if you didn't use it directly, you probably used it indirectly. Right. And even down in the lab somewhere where someone had just bought a different brand of mini computer and wanted to strap it up to the corporate network, guess what? All these little devices started appearing because computing was becoming more accessible. And the lingua franca of connecting this up was TCP IP. You know, Jeff, this is really fascinating because you're kind of heading to a world where this idea of expectations is forking in two. On the one hand, we have a grand plan. We're going to do everything coordinated in the government way, centrally funded. It's a big hurrah. And in the other, we've got, it's just an experiment. The expectation here, it's just a toy. doesn't matter if it doesn't work. We didn't build this to scale out for everybody. But the reality that's emerging here from the way you're talking about it is completely upside down. Nobody's looking at the OSI side saying, yep, that's the one I'm going to put all my packets on. And everybody's looking at the internet protocol stack, the throwaway, the expected to end, saying, don't stop. And indeed, digital equipment had drunk from the magic Kool-Aid dispenser, believed it, and had released DECnet Phase 5, which was OSI-based. But unlike TCP IP, it was not free. It was definitely, definitely not free. Well, part of that, Jeff, is that to buy the specs for TCP, (laughs) as in be given them for free, you had to print half a bookshelf of books. But to get the specs from DEC for DECnet Phase 5, you needed the entire bookcase. It It was was huge. But, you know, hats off to the Defence Department, who had actually commissioned the University of Berkeley, California, to build a TCP IP protocol stack and make the source code available without any form of restriction or constraint. So on the one side, here was this working implementation. It worked. You can put it on Unix. It just worked. You paid nothing. And on the other side was, as you say, a bookshelf of documentation, an extraordinary investment. But I want to get to this point, this crisis point of June 1992, because That last, I think, four years was a whirlwind. All of a sudden, computing at a national and global scale in the academic and research community was possible. We had just figured out that Usenet News, if you remember that, was addictive. Email was amazing. Faxes were just so expensive and so yesterday. All of a sudden, an entire sort of academic and research community was getting addicted to digital communication because it was free, it was incredibly fast, 
You could move huge amounts of data if that's what you needed to do at the time, and it didn't cost. And at the same time, we were seeing commercial operators swing up by the sides and bring in some of the more advanced corporates along with them going, you know, we have interfaces with universities and researchers, we want to exchange data. And so a bunch of people started to look at the number of folk who were pulling out addresses from that big address bank operated actually in Menlo Park, I think it was, SRI, who was running the Internet Address Registry, the singular Internet Address Registry. Now, if you're big, you could get a Class A, 24 million addresses, universities, only a select few got Class A addresses. Ford got a Class A? So They're big. They're big. They're big. Mercedes, I think, got one too, but MIT. But if you're small, you kind of got a Class C, which was 256 addresses. Not bad. Which was pretty small because we were starting to use IBM personal computers, Apple's mini computers. 256 was nothing. And so a bit like the Goldilocks story, Class A, too big. Class C, too small. Class B, well, that was actually too big too, but it was the only one left, 65,000 addresses. And so by 1990, we predicted that we were going to run out of Class B addresses within about three years. So the compliance and process boundaries on this, I remember, were really quite sweet. You acquired a form that was essentially three pages of A4, well, except it was US legal because it was an American form. And it basically said, how big are you? Which bucket do you fit in, A, B, or C? There were D and E buckets, but they were never mentioned. And the second thing it said was, how big do you think you'll be in about five years? And the third thing it said was, are you commercial? And there was a rather weird moment there because everyone thought that meant if you said yes, they'd say you can't connect because at various times, that was the rule. They'd say no if you said you were commercial. But you said answers to three questions and an email address and a day or so later, a specific address field wound up back in your mailbox saying, have this one or no, you don't qualify. That was it. Lucky you, George. We did it with faxes. And getting addresses didn't imply you got connected. That was the other thing about SRI. Oh, no, 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 no. You could be be a totally disconnected network and right away and get a Class B or send them a fax and you'd get back a Class B address for free, forever. So no wonder in some ways that the Bs were under a lot of pressure and the pressure was put back on the emerging sort of grand old visionaries of the, by then very young IETF going, well, solve this problem for us, because if you don't, in three years' time, we're going to hit the wall. So this is the classic success disaster. Everyone wants to use IP. It had only just started. It was only a few years old, yet its end was nigh. And so on the back of an internet INET conference, INET 92 in Kobe in Japan, the dear old Internet Architecture Board of the day considered this issue of we're going to hit the wall and this is a problem. And that already sort of gently encouraged researchers to have a beauty parade of what we could do. And that conference had a whole bunch of relatively interesting research-style proposals 
of the next protocol beyond IP version 4. And there were some wacko ones, there's no doubt, you know, completely open field. But the IAB wasn't interested in a grand experiment. It was interested in, well, where do we go from here? We seem to have a problem and it seems to be looming. And so they did the only thing I think they felt they could do because their expectation was that IP was purely temporary. And if that was the case, and we were about to find an end of the experiment forced upon us, they did the only thing they could possibly do. They said to the rest of the emerging internet community, you know that OSI protocol? You know that connectionless profile in the transport level? We're going there. So the thing about that profile is a rather odd quality. It was basically, to some extent, a reflection of what the ARPANET suite, TCP IP, had uncovered about the nature of how protocols work. It reflected very many qualities of what was in TCP, right down to calling certain fields time to live. It just basically modelled itself on remarkably similar concepts about what would happen as a packet moved through the network hop to hop. But one thing it did do is it had variable length addresses, and they could be very long. Well, yes, and there are a few folk who are definitely in favour of variable length addresses and a whole lot of other folk who definitely weren't. And the folk who definitely weren't were in the business of moving packets through silicon as quickly as possible. Variable length addresses imply multiple memory lookups. Things get very slow very, very quickly. If raw speed is what you're after, variable length addressing is what you definitely want to avoid. It is much harder to implement in silicon. But it went deeper than that, and we turned back to the old transatlantic fight. How dare you, dear IAB, renege on us, the American IETF, and go over and bless this European nonsense? Are you insane? And It was quite an emotional discussion on the mailing lists at the time, and people were perhaps more heated than engaging in a spirit of (laughs) harmony and unity. Well, there were regular meetings of the Internet Engineering Task Force, which had been going on for about five years, and they were getting into a kind of, no less, four years, 1992, yeah. So... There was a meeting at Danvers, and that was kind of a cathartic meeting because the emerging community of internet stalwarts didn't buy into the expectation that this was purely temporary. They weren't believers in the fact that this experiment was ever going to come to an end. They were believers. They were true believers, and they felt the IAB had sold them out. And so the basic reaction was, How dare you? Who are you? Why do we need no stinking IAB? We're not going to take it. And instead of accepting meekly, yes, well, the future is CLNS, the IETF decided, well, the future's not the IAB. Let's go back and rethink what we do about address exhaustion. And so that was a cathartic moment because at that point, the expectations of both OSI and IP were rewritten forever. That meeting in Danvers 
in, I think it was July 92, killed OSI stone dead. They didn't know it. But the US government now had a really weak case of supporting further efforts in that protocol. They persisted with government OSI profiles, but the entire American industry base weren't a believer. The entire American computing industry weren't believers. And all over the world, with exception perhaps of Europe, but everyone else is sort of this, oh, oh, okay, this the climate, this has changed. New winds, let's all face over here and let's all jump on the IP bandwagon. And they did. And at the same time, OSI, which had been built on some fundamental contradictions that only a moronic bunch of committees could ever have come up with, only the Europeans could ever have compromised the technology to the extent they did with both connectionless and connection-based transport protocols sitting in the same sort of bits of paper. Only they could have designed such brain-dead technology that never actually internally hung together. The interesting dividing line is actually remarkably close to the transport layer in that stack because around the time I left the UK and moved to Australia, this was around the time that Marshall Rose took the idea of the OSI stack and the idea of the IP stack and said, we don't actually have a functioning global OSI network, but we do have a working IP layer. How about if we keep all of the IP layer up to transport and put the higher layers of the OSI stack on here and carry on as normal? And had actually succeeded in bootstrapping functional email systems, functional remote operation systems as working using OSI at the application space, but using internet protocol for all effective communications. He kind of kicked the leg out from underneath the GOSIP model. It wasn't necessary to have all of GOSIP to achieve what people really wanted. Right. But to some extent, Marshall had a good idea, but the rest of the world wasn't really ready to have applications mashed into the OSI straitjackets. It was a corner case of particular agencies, government agencies, the post office, the army, the navy, that had to use X400 email, for instance, who would quite happily see that email message in X400 application protocol space carried over an IP network. They were fine. Uh, But everyone else was in the anarchy, which was SMTP mail and, and, you know, various gophers and all kinds. The application space was just a wild free-for-all. I just wanted to sort of bring up, because we're going to get on to two more in the little bit of time we've left, but that was the first of these failure of expectation. But here's this gigantic industry, and even then it was bigger than perhaps it is now, who'd set their sail, who'd set the course. We only need to implement that. It's already OSI everywhere. And this kind of American project that openly admitted, openly, there's no future here. Do not look at us to save you. We're not going to. And reality just twisted the table and said, you know, no, we're going to run with IP for a whole bunch of reasons, but we're going to run with IP. And you know that OSI thing? Nah. Now, part of this was all about scaling and the shock in IP of being shown This is an unparalleled success. You have a problem. And this brings us to the next failed expectation, which was actually the saga of V6. You see, when you stumble upon an accidental success, 
it's highly likely you're going to learn nothing. Or what you do learn is probably wrong. You take the wrong lessons from the circumstance you find yourself in. Right. So what was the success of IP version 4, they thought, that if we need to move this technology because we're running out of addresses, what do we need to do? And the lesson that the community took from the IP effort was you need to be open. You need to be collaborative. You don't need to just do massive amounts of paper. You actually need to make standards that can be implemented. You need a tight feedback loop. So you need pragmatic standards that lead to interoperable technology. If you follow this process, they thought, success will be yours. If you create free, accessible implementations and you build the specs so that anyone else can build accessible, interoperable implementations, then you're done. You don't need a mountain of paperwork. You just need enough. As Dave Clark said, rough consensus and running code. That was the kind of aftermath of the June 1992 IAB massacre. The aftermath was the processes that got the internet to where it was then are the processes we need to emulate in designing a successor protocol. Well, I think most people would adhere to a belief that's broadly what we think now, but I have a feeling you're saying false lesson. Well, let's have a look at this because it's now 2023. And if you listen to this in 2024, whoops, wake up. This is being recorded a year ago. Um, <laughs> and there's still a whole lot more people, twice as many folk out there who don't have IPv6 than those that do. We never, ever expected this transition to last for two going on three decades. We thought that if V6 would last for three or four decades, that was success, let alone a transition that never quite got there in getting up to three decades. That's not success. Whatever it is, it's a mismatch of expectation. Hmm. And so why were we so wrong about, well, if we follow the right process, if we're open, if we're collaborative, if we make the specs pragmatic, if we make them simple, why doesn't everyone adopt it? Because we kind of thought this is nice, bright, shiny and new, a bit like V4. If it took only a few small years to go from X25 to IP, and it only took a few small years, well, obviously V6 will be a doddle to walk in the park. We haven't changed any of the upper layer protocols. Nothing's changed up the top. If you think about some of the behaviours coming in the door in the 90s, this is really before wide-scale web. This is a time when the predominant platform that people expect to be able to use is email. That was fundamentally the glue of global communications, and it's inherently store and forward. And that word store implies the ability to say, well, I store what came in on V4 and I forward it out on V6. So there's a certain belief in my head. We could have handled things in our heads at that time, one half four, one half six, because things like email perform the natural translation. But I'm sitting here thinking, 
we misunderstood the likelihood of people wanting to sit one side of a conversation in four and the other side only having six. And the problem is we didn't make these two protocols able to talk to each other. Oh, never could. Never could. Relay protocols can be, if you will, compatible across these relay jumps. Four on one side, six on the other. The relay does all the smart work. But we had said to ourselves, and people had said to us, it's the end-to-end model. It's clear end-to-end. There is no relaying. The source speaks a protocol to the destination, and the network merely passes the packets on. It doesn't translate them. So as soon as you say that, you kind of can't do any kind of in-the-network hook. But the other problem about this is this open community, this everyone at the pump mentality meant that nobody, literally nobody, was in charge. DARPA had long since ran away, just long since. US government, no one was in charge. It was chaos. And the IAB making an assertion we're in charge was obviously met with the reaction, no, no, you're not. You're not. No, you're not. And so there were many more solutions than just V6. And some of them came out of the IETF, some of them didn't. Now, the first one to buy time was very, very pragmatic. We have three addresses, class A type, class B type, class C type. Let's get rid of that. Instead of saying, the address comes with a sort of a natural boundary of size, let every address prefix say how big it is. And you think, well, that's really quite a clever idea. And it was. And there was only one thing at the start you really needed to change, the routing protocols, not the hosts, not the large number of things. You actually only needed to change a small number of routers, and it was small at the time, and changed the routing protocol. And in particular, you only needed to change one, the border gateway protocol. So within about nine months, BGP version four had been specified and deployed. And in March 94, all of a sudden, we started to do classless interdomain routing. All of a sudden, we had bought not just a few years of extra life, but probably a decade or two, because we were no longer running out of Bs, because there was no B. If you wanted 512 addresses, have 512 addresses, not 65,000. You know, I think a decade is actually on the money because if we think back to the history of process in the world we live in, in registries, 2011 is kind of when rundown hits, when we had to think really hard about allocation policies to deal with not having very much more addressing. And you're talking about 92 to 94. So rough numbers, we're talking about a 10-year window. And when you think from 94 back to 84, it means... A, Bs and Cs, well, we got about 10 to 15 years out of that and used up arguably too much. We got at least 10 more years by shifting to variable length network prefixes and probably a lot more. And so that wasn't the first thing that we did to actually go counter to the expectation that V6 was inevitable, we needed V6 quickly, the expectation was we'd all go to V6 because on the other side of the coin was V4 and it was dying. 
So classless interdomain routing bought us another 10 years. Sense of urgency dissipating. Second change, which was actually not technical, but it was more about the infrastructure. The thing about SRI and their successors, I think it was Government Systems was its original name, is that they were the awardee of a government contract. And as we all know, it's the lowest bidder wins. This was cheap work. This was work where there was very little care and attention. You sent in a fax, they sent you back an address. End of transaction, get out of my face. Now, that was how we started to consume addresses mindlessly. And the Europeans, Daniel Karenberg and Rob Bloxall, headed over to one of these meetings in the, in fact, it was about 1990, 91, said, look, people in America, look, SRI, look, NSF, we'll take the European workload off your hands. Give us some addresses and we'll look after them. But they also said, we'll take a lot better care than you did. We will actually work through what folk want and start to implement a more conservative policy about how much you get. Very soon after that, along came the community in the Asia-Pacific with a similar deal. And even the Americans then, as they moved away from NSF funding into a model that was more about community-based funding, started to introduce better care and address allocation, right? So from the four years, from 1990 to 1994, the old model gave away 600 million addresses and the network was tiny, tiny. From 1996 until the year 2000, the last four years of that decade, 250 million addresses over a vastly, a 10 times bigger network. So this, if you take more care about how many addresses you give out, if you only give it out for a period of one year and after a year, if you need more, come back and we'll give you more. Pricing it, there was a certain amount of transactional money involved now, it was no longer free. All of a sudden the network was growing like crazy, but it wasn't burning up addresses. So the second thing that rephrased the expectation, you need V6 right now, was actually one of the biggest proponents of V6, the regional internet registry system. Yes. Who by their very actions were saying, if you want conservation, we'll give you care, attention and conservation. We will allocate carefully. But there was an expectation across that time that this too was essentially a transitional time frame leading to natural adoption of V6. We were trying to forestall the inevitable at this point. We were trying to give the industry more breathing space because V6 wasn't being implemented by yesterday. So it was a worthy idea, but it certainly went counter to the expectation of the time. The last factor in the failed expectation was your friend and mine, network address translators. Nats are evil. Nats are evil. Nats. The world runs on them. Nats are evil. Nats the are evil. So this is a bitter truth that I think we've all had to come to accept, which is that there are many statements about networks we really hold to. Nats are evil. Tunnels are bad. 
Gnats are incredibly useful. Tunnels are a fact of life. And so moving away from almost religious statements of belief that network address translation is inherently the bad idea to an acceptance at scale, we can build technology that uses network address translation. Wow, that has been amazing. Right. So that's actually gave us extra bits of a pseudo address space. If you are willing to have applications jump through address translation and all the applications today work through NATS or you don't run them. Simple as that. So the ones that didn't like NATS aren't used anymore. We cleansed the internet of them. And what's left is actually a bunch of stuff that runs through NATS. And those three measures have actually meant that here we are in 2023 and we're quite comfortable with the fact that we're running a, a sort of hybrid dual stack network. A third of the users have v4 and v6, and that's cool. The other two thirds don't, but they're not second class citizens. They're not. And so the urgency of v6 has long since dissipated. Even in the price of address transfers, there's no scarcity address shock, not really. And so if the expectation was we needed V6 by 1995 or the internet will collapse, yeah, nah. Mm. We need IPv6 by 2011 because then we'll chew up the last of the vacant addresses from the IANA. Yeah, nah. And I defy anyone to say we need IPv6 by, nominate someday, otherwise the network will collapse and doom and disaster will happen. And the answer truly is, yeah, nah. Because the expectation was everything needed to be uniquely addressed once and forever, in actual fact, was a bad expectation. The real issue was we solved a bunch of problems in various ways, some organizational, like the RIR system, some by subtly different models of technology, NATS, and we alleviated the pressure to have everyone jump at once. Industry loves that kind of independence. So all of a sudden, we don't have a problem anymore. Failed expectations once more. There's nothing wrong with V6. It's a fine protocol. It's not that much different to V4. Our problem was, the expectation was, we need to get it deployed, fully deployed, so we never consume the last V4 address. It's kind of, there are many ways to implement that issue. V6 is only one way. There are other ways, and we've actually explored every last bypass. So we're not the best in guessing the future is really what it gets down to. And while we style ourselves in the IETF as masters of the technology of the internet, the industry is much, much bigger than that. And there's many more complicating factors. Let me also, just because the failed expectations are sometimes matched by phenomenal success, just point out a couple, which in engineering terms are impossible. Imagine building a bridge that's big enough or small enough or whatever that can carry one car an hour, and that same bridge is capable of carrying a billion cars per second. What kind of technology can scale a billionfold more without altering it at all. And I give you TCP, the Transmission Control Protocol. 
I'm like, it's just amazing. We've actually been able to build an artifact, which I'm not sure if we expected that much success, which has been outstanding. And part of the reason why is a design based on minimalism. You know, it is a classic do enough and no more. Leave the rest to other things. And that limited feedback model of TCP has been astonishingly, truly astonishingly effective. And in that, it worked. I'd also give you the Border Gateway Protocol, BGP4. Once we went classless, almost nothing has changed. It's the same protocol. And in fact, it's an implementation of uh, Bellman Ford distance vector, which I think dates back to the late 1950s. Again, its foundation is really remarkably simple concepts about saying what you hear and listening to be told things and making logical choices around the inputs you receive and the outputs you emit. It's really not a tremendously complicated protocol when it comes down to it. Right. And it's, it's simple. And from time to time, someone, typically from the vendors, waves the flag, BGP is dying, we need another new protocol, it's not scaling, it's blah, 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 the sky is falling, and the sky has never fallen. BGP has just simply coped. We're now up at a million networks in IPv4, close to 200,000 in V6. It's just working. So again, sometimes you just get it right. And I'm not even sure we had confident expectations that we did, but, you know, whatever we, ex- we expected from both TCP and BGP, we've done it. We've actually just managed to get that sweet spot of define enough but not too much. We've managed to design from the general case, not the specifics. We've focused on one function, just transport, just routing. We've kept it simple. We've just done enough and avoided interdependencies. It's not complicated. And in some ways, we made it so those things weren't dependent on everything else. So you could build BGP yourself independently of anyone else. And that's kind of good because this industry is only orchestrated by markets, not by regulatory fiat. So those are the lessons about how to make stuff actually work. We're learning a couple of more lessons lately which I think are going to shape our expectations in the future. The first, which is painful, is every needless exposure of data can and will be used against the user. Yes, so we'll deal with encryption and security later quality that is the history of the internet. Well, later is now. We're actually having to understand this stuff as a critical component of what we do. It was just an experiment, George. We didn't have to solve it, was the thinking at the time. We weren't building that network. OSI was. And so, yes, security was a bolt-on afterwards because at the time it wasn't part of the limited experiment. So, yes, that's what happened. The second lesson I think we're learning in phrasing expectations is the market is the orchestrator nobody else. Now, what do I mean by that? For any technology to be adopted, the adopters, right from the first one, need to have a benefit. If you're relying on all of us to jump left before you can realise the benefit of having jumped left, it's never going to happen. Benefits have to be realisable right from the start. Now, 
That's part of the problem about why security is so damn hard. Because security can only tell you what's good. The evil bit, hi, I'm a bad packet, never Mm. exists. No. And so the only way we infer it's evil is the absence of good. Security works best when everyone does it. When only a few people do it, you don't actually know the difference between bad and, ah, I'm not doing it today. And so that's why this is so difficult to actually make it fly properly. The technology is actually working against us. Adopters need to be able to realise the benefits straight away. Don't rely on everyone to jump there. You need to be able to do this piecemeal. And those are kind of fundamental lessons about how expectations can flow with adopters And in the case, as I said, the early cases of OSI and V4, sometimes our expectations get in the way. And and maybe you could argue, and it's getting into those deep hypotheticals, what would have happened if ARPA had planned for success, not temporary pragmatism? Could they have managed to do a better job of security? Would they have done 128-bit addresses, not 32? It's a brave line of reasoning that you could foresee a need for 128. The beginnings of it probably do lie in other fields of computer science around that time because that was the window in time when we also were exploring very long instruction words. It was the crossover from CISC, complex computer instruction sets, to RISC, reduced instruction sets. And there were people who were saying, we actually need computers that can handle routinely 128 and 256-bit quantities. And it's possible in the counterfactual world, if they just arrived two years earlier, chipsets would have been available that would have allowed ARPA to say to the architects, hey, don't limit the address to 32 bits, and we'd be in a different world. But you know, Jeff, I also kind of feel that we did okay across that failure. You know, I'm not that bothered, if you like, that the V4 experiment that was believed to end managed to keep on living. I'm quite happy with the way it turned out too, George. Reality is what it is, and you might as well be happy with it because there is no choice. But these things always, I suppose, intrigue me of the paths not followed and the reason why. And, you know, in some ways, ascribing to the IETF and, and the technologists this kind of ability to be prescient is going way too far. We have frailties in vision like everyone else. And our history is not a history of unparalleled success. It's the same as anything else. We got it wrong a few times. Yeah. And we'll continue to have a mixed record. Not everything's a winner. Not every hit's a banger, you know. No, but at the same time, suck it and see is a remarkably successful way of designing (laughs) a global network, isn't it? Well, it seems to have worked for this one. (laughs) Jeff, that's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. A pleasure, George, and I hope, uh, dear listener, you've been entertained for the last hour or so of a walk back over 40 years of a mixed bag of success and a certain failure or two. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, 
or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement project. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.